Today's message originated in the pulpit of Covenant Community Church by lead pastor Alan Ellis. Covenant Community Church lives to glorify Christ by making disciples who are growing in relationship with God in worship, then with the church in fellowship, and with the world in witness. Now, here's today's message. Well, I was in, uh, I left, flew out for to Connecticut Tuesday, came back late yesterday afternoon. So normally I take some reading material with me. Um, this time it was a book entitled God for Us. It's written by a, a woman on the development of the uh, doctrine of the Trinity. It's not light reading, as you can imagine. But I, uh, I find myself when I'm in uh, airports with nothing to do that that's a good time to force myself to read a book that maybe if there was a TV handy or whatever, um, I might not read. So it got me thinking about things as I was flying from um, Charlotte back to St. Louis yesterday. I started to write out what I was thinking, and then I realized that um, what I was thinking about had had to do with uh, today, the second Sunday in Advent. We saw last week the first Sunday in Advent, the, the theme, one of the, there are several different tracks you can run on in Advent, but one track, the first Sunday in Advent, the theme is hope. And then today's theme, the second Sunday in Advent, is peace. Uh, next week, the Lord willing, the lighter candle, colored candle, um, the theme is joy. And then the fourth Sunday in Advent, the theme is love. Uh, some uh, on another track today would be the prophets uh, Sunday, and we have this. We've read this passage from uh, Matthew chapter three, talking about John the Baptist. Um, but I do want to talk about uh, peace today, uh, because it seems to be so unreachable for most of us at this time of year. Not just at this time of year, but in our lives in general. You can, um, you can just about endure anything if you possess the peace of God that passes all human understanding. And if you don't have that peace that passes human understanding... Um, then the smallest irritant can just um, do you in. So we know that love, joy, peace, peace is one of the, the fruit of the Spirit. And to some degree, we kind of nibble around the edges of it. Um, but for most of us, I think it doesn't take much for us to be to to lose our equilibrium, to lose our balance, and to lose our peace. So I think it's good that this subject comes relatively early on in the season of Advent, so that we can, as Christy is saying, kind of push away from the tinsel, the shallow things that so 
almost like an octopus, just gather its arms around Christmas and squeeze uh, the true spirit of Christmas and makes uh, peace a characteristic that we have difficulty realizing in our lives. So I've titled this uh, this morning, Sleep in Heavenly Peace. And of course, you would recognize that uh, almost immediately as from the Christmas Carol, Silent Night. Sleep in heavenly peace, sleep in heavenly peace. Um, but I began thinking about this uh, from a particular scripture passage. It's If you have your Bibles, it's from the book of Ephesians. And we're not, we don't have the time to unpack all of this. But look, uh, look together with me at Ephesians chapter 4. Now, this comes in uh, the exhortation half of the epistle. Ephesians has six chapters. The first three chapters are really Paul teaching doctrine. And then the last three chapters, he's exhorting the people. If you look in the beginning of chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians, he says, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you. You see, he's, he's exhorting us. He is calling us. He's pushing us, urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, that the walk of sanctification should mirror the truths of our justification. The benefits that I have received in justification should walk themselves out and be applied in my life of sanctification. My judicial standing where the judge has said, you're free to go. Uh, when I turn around and walk out of the courtroom, my life should reflect that verdict. How many know that to be true? So if you walk out of the courtroom and you turn around and say, got away with that, uh, that is not, <laughs> that's not the right attitude. And that person is headed for trouble. But if you walk out of the courtroom and you say, thanks be to God, the tender mercies of God have been indeed displayed in my life, then that will cause you, and it has caused many in that situation, to turn over a new leaf and seek uh, a better life. Occasionally we hear about people who have been arrested for crimes they committed years and years and years ago. And when their case finally comes to court, the judge will look at, well, what kind of life did you live? And you'll People um, may, may have lived lives 30, 35 years, 40 years, 50 years, married, had children, had grandchildren, and the judge will say, well, in, in light of the transformation that obviously has taken place in your life, um, no further sentence is uh, necessary. So Paul's urging us, and that 
urgent message continues in verse 17. Now look at it with me. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must, this is not optional for us, Paul is saying. This is part of, this is the mustiness of his message now. And he's got something that he's urging us to do. And now he's telling us that we don't have any choice in the matter. You must no longer walk. We have to stop doing something. Walk in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's uh, writing, have to do with the life of sanctification. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God. In other words, a justified Christian could continue to walk as though he or she had never been saved, had never met Christ. Paul says this is, this is not the New Testament pattern. This is not according, he tells us later on, this is not according to uh, my teaching. Look at it again. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Verse 20, but, say that with me, but, you got to underline that word. That's probably uh, one of the greatest words in the New Testament. But that is not the way you learned Christ. So when a person comes to Christ and is saved and a new life principle has been planted in their heart and the Holy Spirit takes up residence, there are there is a course of learning that they must embark on. So I, I know more today than I did at the beginning of this week before I read the first hundred pages of God for us on the doctrine of the Trinity. You say, well, why do you do it? I have people um, tell me, you know, what we need now in the church is men of action. And, and that's kind of a, a backward criticism of me because what they're saying is, Pastor Allen, you need to stop reading books and you need to get out there and do this. And I tell them, um, well, I would like to tell them. I don't tell them. But I would like to tell them that what is worse, um, someone who does no harm or someone who does a great deal of harm because they don't know what they should be doing. Personally, in my own life, uh, learning, being taught, which involves reading and a life of contemplation, it will always, it may not as soon as you like it, but it will always evidence itself on the plane of action at some point in your life. Because if you go back to uh, earlier verses, verse 17, you, you see Paul hinting at this, in the futility of their mind. Now, I understand what people are saying, that a person can always be about, you know, uh, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth, that a person can always be dealing with theory and, uh, and never taking, never being transformed by it. That's not been the case in my life. Trust me, slow 
methodical, line upon line, precept upon precept, instruction in in the school of Christ will eventually, eventually it will transform how you walk out your life. There can be cases of instantaneous deliverance in a person's life, but even in those cases, that person still has to go to school. They, they still have to learn some things. We've all seen that. Um, these, uh, one man called disappointing baptisms, where people had undeniably an encounter with God, but then a few weeks or months later, where are they? And it's because... Um, they didn't enroll themselves in, in the school of Christ. Look at it again, verse 20. But that is not the way you learn Christ. So there are some things about Christ that you do not get in the first deposit. Just like going to the first day of school, there are some things on the first day of school that you will not learn until you go to the Second day of school. And there are some things on the second day of school you won't learn until you go to third. That, that was grade four, Mrs. Auger. Multiplication tables. For a long time, the only way I could take the test until they started timing it was that I didn't know my multiplication table, so I would just add them up. I would take four times nine, so I would add nine plus nine plus nine plus nine. How many have ever done that? Right? If you don't know what 12 times 12 is, which is... 144, what do you do? You write 12 down 12 times and you add it up. 12 plus 12 is 24 plus 12 is 36. And that takes longer, right, than saying 12 times 12 is. Well, at some point in the fourth grade, Mrs. Auger started timing those math tests. So if that's what you were doing, you only got through half the problems. And then she could focus on what the real problem was. So Just because the judge says you're free to go doesn't mean you're free. But that is not the way you learn Christ. Now look what he says with the caveat in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. See, this is... This is an assumption that the Apostle Paul is making, and it's the, it's the wisdom of being in pastoral ministry so, for so long that Paul is sharing with us is that everybody that gets the first dose doesn't, comes to the first day of school, doesn't show up for the, for the third month of school. People have very little patience for this, but what happens then in their lives um, they they engage with temptation and scandal uh, defeats them and then they move away from their uh, experience with Christ and they say, well, I don't, you know, it, I don't know what Christians are. That's all about it. It didn't work for me. I graduated from high school after the graduation ceremony. The principal came up to me and he said, I'm surprised you graduated as much as you were absent in your senior year. 
I was like, too late now? Got it? So what were we taught then? Look in verse 22. This is what we were taught, and this is the point now, to put off. Say that with me, put off. To put off, if I, if I, uh, if I took this jacket off this morning, right, and, and some, we'll, we'll see it, I, I'm putting off my coat, taking off my coat. Here it is, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life. See, this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about justification here. We're talking about sanctification. How are you walking? How, what is your conversation? How are you conducting your life? To put off your old self, this is what we're taught, to, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed, here it is again, in the spirit of, of your minds. That's why there's no room in the church of Jesus Christ for unnecessary denigration about education, intellectualism, and learning. We need all of the tools that are available to us. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and Paul's still telling us what the curriculum is here, and to put on, say that with me, put on. So we're supposed to put off something, the old self, and we are, through the renewing of our minds, we are to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, true righteousness, and true holiness, not the fake stuff in true righteousness and in true holiness. It's a beautiful passage, and we've just touched on we've kind of the warp and woof of the fabric a little bit. We've stretched it one way and stretched it another way. Now, this phrase, to put off in verse 22, and then to put on in verse 24, is sometimes referred to as uh, the process of dehabituating and rehabituating. Of course, you can see in the middle of those, both of those words is the word what? Habit. Uh, habit, that word has been around for a long time, various forms, started in Latin and then to the French and, and obviously to the English. But uh, habit back uh, at the end of the Middle Ages, referred tended to refer to the characteristic attire of a religious or, or clerical order. So we would, even today, uh, there, there, if, you're, uh, if you're a nun in a nunnery where they require you to wear the characteristic attire or the habit of a nun, then, then you will say, oh, there's a, there's a nun, and I recognize that she's a nun because she's in a nun's habit. It can refer to clothing generally, and, of course, the, the definition of the word develop, we talk about good habits and bad habits, using the word to refer to drug habits 
occurred towards the end of the 19th century. But it had to do with the typical and customary uh, style that you would uh, adopt on a daily basis. So my habit, usually Monday through Saturday and sometimes Sunday, is I I put on these old white painter pants. Uh, One of them, I got red paint all over the bottom. It looked like I had killed several cats. And uh, a pocket tee, right? And my old work belt and my shoes. And maybe in colder weather, I'll put like another... That's my habit. And then people look at me and, and they... They, they would not look at my attire and there, ergo assume, therefore assume, therefore, that, oh, he must be a pastor. Now uh, they look at me and they say, oh, he's a cat killer. Or they say, I'll, I'll get people in Home Depot who say, do you paint? And I say, only when I have to. Um, that's my daily, customary, this is my usual attire. Now, if you think about this, Paul is asking us to dehabituate. This is why when, when, we, when we are in the, the hard, doing the hard work of putting on the new man, putting off the old man and putting on the new man, Uh, why we find it so difficult, because I'm used to the clothes that I like. Uh, every so often, I'll have a favorite piece of clothing, or Christy will have a favorite piece of clothing. I remember a green uh, shirt shift dress that she used to wear to work. And I kind of liked that on Christy. She looked good in it. She looked like a girl. And so a while, a few years ago, I said, what happened to that? And she said, I threw it out. And I was like, oh. Uh, there are certain clothes, really, in, in our day and age, you know, I, I guess people don't look in the mirror at all when they go out in public because, dear Lord, like I understand that comfort is a prime characteristic here, but really, Woo! Lord have mercy. Well, I like this. I like what I'm dressed in because, right, somebody will wear sweatpants or, or well, you know, you've seen it. I'm, I don't have to go there. You just, I feel like going over and slapped their face and said, does your mother know you're out in public in, in this? And they're probably 45 or 50 years old, so that's going to get me arrested. But what we become accustomed to and what is comfortable to uh, to us, we find it difficult to put off. I, when I was a kid growing up, I would wear my jeans till there were holes everywhere. I would didn't even want to take my jeans off for my mother to wash them. And then it used to be when I was a kid that the way you fix jeans, you bought those iron-on patches. Remember at the store? And so if you had if you had holes in the knee, um, you could iron that patch on over the knee, and they, sometimes they didn't last very long. 
But that was the way that you could extend. Why? Because those pants just, well, they just fit me just right. They ride on my waist at the point that I want them, and they're comfortable. And Paul is saying, so you go to school, we're going to take you from where you are through the teaching process, and you're going to discover things that you didn't know before, and it's not going to be an easy thing to do because you're going to have to dehabituate. This is, this is why some people are, are never successful in rehab because they don't put the old, they don't work at putting the old man off first. You got to put the old set of clothes off, set those aside, and then put on the new man. This is the path, Paul tells us, to true righteousness and to true holiness. And if there's such a thing as true righteousness and true holiness, there must be such a thing as false righteousness and false holiness. We've all done that. We've all let on that we are better in our walk of sanctification than than we really are. We've all done that. I've done that. I may be doing it now. Isn't that a sober thought? It was a fine sermon, Pastor Allen, this morning, you hypocrite, you. That's a, that's a le- legitimate remark. I can, I can be just as hypocritical as you can be. So it's not an easy thing to do, to put off old habits. How many know this is true? To put off old habits and to replace them with new habits. And that's part of the problem, that sanctification is not just about don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. You have to, just like any addict, you have to replace those bad habits with good habits. Now look, this phrase then, to put on and put off, is used several times in the New Testament. Just look quickly with me in the book of Colossians, just a few pages over. Colossians chapter 3. It's uh, Colossians and Ephesians are the, share a lot of the same material. He says in verse 5, Put to death, therefore, Colossians 3, 5, what is earthly in you. How many know that? <laughs> That's a lifelong pursuit right there. But to death, therefore, what is earthly in you? Start with, why don't you try this, he says, sexual immorality, check, impurity, check, passion, check, evil desire, check, covetousness, which is idolatry, check. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Hmm, seems like that might be important then, something to work on. And these you two once what? Walk. Here it is. We're talking about sanctification. It's not that God doesn't love you. He does love you. And he will, he has saved you in spite of your imperfections. If, if that's not true, then nobody's saved. There is no gospel. But because you are saved, this, this is always Paul's, uh, approach. Because you are saved, as Francis Schaeffer said, how then should we live? What should my life look as a result of this life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ? 
Look, look at it again. In these, verse 7, in these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now, here's another list, you must put them all away. Oh, gosh. You're not asking much, Paul, right? You must put them all away. Put them all away. Here, the characteristic word again, phrase, that he's used in Ephesians, you must put them all away. What? That favorite shirt that I have of anger. That favorite t-shirt I have of wrath. That favorite pair of underwear. We're not going to go any farther with that. Called malice. That favorite sweater of slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have what? Put off. There it is. That's the dehabituate. That is that is to put off the old self with its practices. You see that? Remember, I don't know if they do that in school now, but every so often, if you did something wrong in school, the teacher would make you write in cursive on the blackboard a sentence like a hundred times. Anybody ever do that? Woo! Because if you practice something long enough, it becomes habitual. Whether it's a good practice or whether it's a bad practice. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is what? Being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Now, God is no dummy. How many know God couldn't be a dummy if he created the world? And he expects you and I to renew ourselves in that same pattern. Uh, look over in the vaunted book of James, which is already uh, we heard referred to this morning. But look in James, it's right after the big book of Hebrews, James chapter 1, says in verse 19, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Put that on a 3 by 5 card, stick it in the mirror in, in your bathroom. Quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, what is the therefore? Therefore, on the basis of what I have said, this is what you should do. What does he say? Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive, see, dehabituate, rehabituate. Now, I don't, I, it's not my intention to make this sound easy. The description uh, is simple, but the process is complicated and will, and, and it's a process that you will be involved in until your dying day. There is something in me every day that has to be put off. And there is something in me every day that I have to acquire or that I have to receive. Look in the book of First Peter, chapter two, verse one. So, 
Say that with me. So put away. Again, dehabituate. Put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And then one final verse of Scripture just to emphasize this. Romans chapter 13 We looked at this last week in the first Sunday in Advent. There it was, right in the text. We read it. Hopefully we heard it. Look what he says. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off. Same phrase in the original language. Let us cast off the works of darkness and what? Put on the armor of light. Now, I want to talk about this just for a few minutes because I think, I think it, I got to thinking about this yesterday that I woke up in the morning praying about uh, different things, different situations, different circumstances, different people. And I I began thinking about God as a master tailor. And I began thinking about it as, as it relates to this passage in Ephesians, to put off the old self, to put on the new self, almost like taking off an old set of clothing and putting on a new set of clothing. I begin to think about God as the master tailor, how that even while we're wearing our habit, the tailor is still at work on our clothes. Now, this would be aggravating, right? Uh, years and years ago, oh, 35 years ago at least, my mother said to me one Christmas, she said, I want you to go and have a suit made. You know, parents have um, strange ideas about their children. She thought that I was, you know, that if I was going to be in the ministry that I needed a suit that fit well. I never took her up on that. Um, I should have. should have gone to Brooks Brothers right then and said, start measuring, boys. It's aggravating enough, you know, I've never been in that process. I've only seen it in movies, you know, where the British suit, suit shop where the guy, the guy's got, you know, he's got the tape measure out, he's measuring across the shoulders, and then he's measuring the chest, and he's measuring inseam, and they're measuring, and then they put the suit on, and it's got, and they have to tweak it here and take it in there. Imagine a tailor following you <laughs> in your clothing, and every position you adopt, he's making an adjustment. He's got his scissors out and he's snipping a few threads here, letting it out, or he's taking it in here, or he's sewing in a reinforcing binding here or there. You would say, just let me wear the clothes. Don't, don't be following me around like this. And I began to think about this as it relates to uh, the events in our lives. Uh, we stumbled on this, uh, talking about asking the question, was David a Calvinist? And we really didn't get in, into this all the way. But the, 
the events that occur in our life, according to the Westminster Confession, our lives are punctuated by events that fall out either. That's, that's their phrase. These things fall out. It's not like something falls off the shelf in your life. But there are days when you wake up and things happen to you. Have you ever gone to sleep at night and things have happened to you in the day and said, well, I sure wasn't expecting that. I sure, I don't know where that came from. Grandma Gwen went to Central Hardware and a gallon of paint fell off the top shelf and hit her on the book to, big toe. She sued him. That's why in, in all the big box stores now, you'll, they're crazy about stuff that's stored up high. Sometimes either that gallon of paint falls off the, the, the top shelf in your life and you say, I didn't see that coming. It chain and it has the we know this that one punctuation event in our life can change the course of our entire lives. It's amazing, isn't it? One phone call, one letter, one email, one conversation, one doctor's visit. And so I begin thinking about this. It's like the tailor following us around, and he's constantly in a, in a very detailed and aggravating way, he's constantly adjusting the fit of our habit to our lives. So the Westminster Confession, this is, this is an end. This will be helpful. You should write this down because sometimes stuff, you know, spit happens, right? Spit, I said spit, S-P-I-T, spit happens, right? Stuff happens in our life. And, and people in the world will, will say, they'll use that phrase, only they, they, don't use the, they don't use the word spit. We've all heard it before. And what it means is, well, there's no, life is willy-nilly, there's no God, there's no one who is calling the events of my life to fall out in any any recognizable or understandable order. So stuff just happens. It just happens. It's not your fault. It's not their fault. It's not anybody's fault. This is just the way life is. Westminster Confession, on the other hand, the Westminster Divines took a look at life and they said there are three areas or three categories in which events can fall out in the order of your life. And the first one is freely. Now, this is the normal modus operandi for most of us. Most of us go through our life, it's amazing how many days you can live your life and not have a God thought. Well, I'm busy, I got to get up in the morning, I got to go to work, I got to get get the kids to school, and you go, you can go through a whole day like that and not have a Godward thought at all, just because, well, things are falling out in my life. I got a list, it's organized, and God kind of withdraws to a point of observation and with a kind of loving indifference, just smiles at us and says, well, that's, that's my child enjoying their life. How many have ever felt that way? You, you might have 
you might take a walk in the woods. I took a walk uh, trying to figure out what to do with our parents' house. So yesterday morning, I took a walk around the 10 acres. The Branford River is down below, and the property goes all the way down to Branford River. I used to be all over that place when I was a kid. And we're trying to figure out, does it make sense to to get a surveyor and divide it up into lots? Does that make the property uh, more valuable? But uh, walking around doing that, God doesn't say, God doesn't sit back, fold his arms and say, well, it wasn't my will for Alan to get up this morning at seven o'clock and go take a walk like that. No, God at most often our lives and the order of events that fall out in our lives day after day function freely. It doesn't mean that God doesn't have control over those events. It's just that he ha- he exercises a loving indifference and says, you know what, Michelle, if you want to go with Nan and you want to go to the Christmas Bazaar or whatever, go ahead, have a good time. If you want to, some people, young people often are, you know, what is God's will for me for a career? And, and God... Uh, a lot of times I think God just says, I don't care what you do. You know, just, just pick something and hopefully you'll be happy with it and go for it. You know, should I be a greeter at Walmart or a greeter at Target? I don't think that God has an opinion there. Are you still with me? That scenario then is described by the Westminster Divines as freely. So, you know, whether you go to McDonald's to eat or whether you go to Burger King to eat, you don't have to sit in your car and say, our Heavenly Father, please let us know what your will is. Have you ever done that? Father God, should I go to Burger King or to McDonald's? God is like, you probably shouldn't go to either one, but, you know, I, I don't really care. You say God doesn't care whether you go to McDonald's or Burger King? No, I don't think God cares. Now, if there's a serial murderer that's going to come into Burger King and shoot a bunch of people, then you see we have the promise from God that he's going to, he's going to intervene that. And you might, we've all experienced this, that still small voice where you're beginning to do something and you just, it's just a, it's just the tiniest little thing. It's so easy to ignore. And I've ignored it before and I've learned not to ignore it. I was on the second story roof at the house this week cleaning out the gutters and you got to be careful cleaning out gutters 20 feet off the ground. And so I've got my legs kind of on the corner of the house. One leg reached over, hanging this way, and this leg folded up over me. This arm outstretched, and I'm leaning over to clean out the gutters. And I just hear this. It's not really hearing it, but you you sense that. Uh, I don't think I'd do that. Now, Is it an educated conscience? It could be, but the Holy Spirit works through 
an informed conscience. So the Westminster divine said, okay, so most of your life, you're free to do. That, that's why people get, they, they assume then that every event in life is free for them to do whatever they want with. And this is where people go into the idea of that they have complete and total free will. That, that can be dismissed in an instant by saying, do you believe that God's will is more free than your will? And what is the answer to that question? Do you believe that God's will is more free than your will? What's the answer to that question? What's the right answer to that question? Yes, I believe that God's will is more free than my will. How could it be otherwise? He's the creator and I'm the creation. If I say no to that question, then I'm saying that, that my will is more free than God's, and that's, that's, uh, that's got a whole lot of, you don't want to go there. So there are some things the Westminster Divine said that happen contingently. In other words, in God's ordering of it, he's not doing it just in my life, not just in your life, but in the life of every person who lives on the face of the earth. How many know? I don't want to be God. God right now is observing the world, every person in the world. This is the biblical notion of God. And for the vast majority of people, he's saying, just go on. But there are some cases, some instances that happen in our life, and it may happen, happens all the time, where God says, the, the master tailor, we feel the clothes getting a little tight. And the master tailor says, now look, this is, a, this is an important choice for you to make because the decision that you make here will affect a decision over here, which will affect a decision over here, which will affect a decision over there. My paternal grand." Father, immigrating from England to Maine, how many know that affected me? That affects Alan Ellis now, 70 or 80 years later in St. Louis. You're driving down the road uh, at night on your way home, and you, you have a sudden impulse. I'm going to stop in and get a drink at the bar. Now, for for many people, that might be in the category of an event falling out in the order of their lives freely. But in your case, it may be contingent because maybe you can't handle that drink. It has the potential then, God says, this is God observing the world. Be careful now. Uh, Yes, I know the Bible says that we should not be drunk. I didn't say that you can't drink. This is God talking to, this is God speaking to us, right? 
but you may not be able to handle that choice. And it has the potential of affecting your children and their children and their children. But then the Westminster Divine said there are things that happen. Yeah, thank you. Necessarily. And this is when the tailor follows us around and we say, you know, I put on a few pounds and could you let out that uh, waistband a little bit? And the tailor says, no, you need to lose weight. And we plead and we cry and we cajole and we pray and we intercede and we ask others, people to pray with us. And the tailor says, no, it's got to be this way. We don't like that, by the way. I don't know anybody that likes that. The clothes, this suit of clothes you have on is not going to be altered anymore. You are going to have to fit yourself to the suit. That's what Jesus, Jesus prayed. Father, I know that all things are possible. Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, and apparently it was the Father's will. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. You can write those three categories down, freely, contingently, or necessarily, and everything, every event that happens in your life, you can put in one of those categories. Try it for a week. Tried for a month, tried for a year, tried for a lifetime. There are times when the master tailor comes to us and he says, no. No more snipping, no more letting out, no more binding. This is my necessary will in your life. So I got to thinking about this as it relates to the Christmas season, and I'm almost done. We've been very patient. But in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7, Luke tells us that when Jesus was born, that they wrapped him in swaddling clothing. How many remember that phrase? They wrapped him in swaddling clothing. And there's a great deal of debate as to what the word swaddling actually means. It was probably just rags, strips of cloth. But as the case, the, the tradition was in Oriental societies, when a child was first born and left the constrictive uh, environment of the mother's womb, the child would be bound with these, we would call them bandages, and bound very tightly. And it gave them the... Uh, it gave them the feeling that they were still within the comfort and protection of their mother's body. Jesus, when he was crucified on the cross, and we're, we're traveling over this very lightly now, but John tells us in John chapter 19 that the soldiers, remember, they gambled for his garment, but that his inner garment, there was an outer garment, and an inner garment. Probably this inner garment was 
fashioned by his mother and given to him as a man. The inner garment was seamless. And that when the soldiers recognized that the inner garment was seamless, instead of dividing it up among them, they cast lots for it because it was a valuable habit. Both of those things, wrapped in swaddling clothes and his seamless inner garment, speak to God as the great tailor in his life. Jesus Christ, when he was born into the world, was immediately constricted by the Father's will. There were more necessary things going on in Jesus' life than in any other human being on the face of the earth. The Old Testament, every Old Testament prophecy was riding on Jesus' obedience to the necessary commands of his Father. You say, well, what if Jesus had walked away in the Garden of Gethsemane? He just said, I, I, I can't do this. And there's a great deal of debate as to whether, as a human being, whether he, he actually had that that ability, but he had so subsumed himself to the Father's will. I do always those things. What other human being was able to say, I do always those things that please you, Father? He had so subsumed his will to the Father's will that he was able to drink the cup of wrath dry. Philippians 2.8, King James Version says that Jesus Christ was fashioned as a man. He was fashioned as a man. So, I don't know what this past week has been like for you. For you, for most of us, it may have been a good week. We may have enjoyed ourselves. We may not have given it a second thought. Or this past week, there were some important decisions that you had to be made that affected not only your welfare, but the welfare of the people that you love, the welfare of the people that you work with, the welfare of the people in the covenant community. Or it may be one of those weeks where God has said as the great tailor, I only want obedience. I only want, that's the only thing I want. I don't want negotiation. I don't want conversation. I don't want discussion. I just want you to say, yes. It is said of Jesus Christ, in the volume of the book it is written, a body thou hast prepared So the song, Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm, all is bright, round yon virgin mother and child, holy infant so tender and mild, sleep in heavenly peace. There he is wrapped tightly in the Father's will. He who had no beginning began. 
began with the necessary imposition of the Father's will in the life of His Son to be the Savior of the world. He gives to His beloved sleep, the psalmist said. So wherever you're at, wherever life takes you, things happen freely, things happen contingently, things happen necessarily, but in the midst of each category, God can build a wall of protection around your mind with the peace that passes all human understanding. It may be that we struggle right now with saying yes to the Father's will, but I can tell you this, when you finally concede to his wishes, he will baptize you with peace. Amen. Lord God Almighty, on this, the second Sunday of Advent, we were in a scramble for meaning, for meaningful peace in our lives pattern of peace in our lives is so easily disrupted, so easily lost, Lord. And so we ask you now, Lord, help us, Lord, as we put off the old man and put on the new man, as we get adjusted to the new habit, to the new suit of clothes. Help us to enjoy our lives when you say to us, go ahead, Do what you want. Choose however you want. Help us to take pause when our decisions affect the lives of others and help us, Lord. Mold us, shape us, snip away. Put a dart in our lives when you've determined that we must necessarily say yes to you. For more information on Covenant Community Church, visit us online at www.covcomchu.org. That's covcomchu.org. Or give us a call at 314-869-4367. At Covenant Community Church, it's our prayer that the preceding message has served to glorify Christ and further God's work in your life.